Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome to this uh, Sydney Ideas event, uh, co-presented with the School of Economics here at the University of Sydney. My name is Tiho Anchev. I'm Associate Professor in the School of Economics and I'll be your host for this evening. Uh, The proceedings will be uh, such that we'll have the talk uh, by our distinguished speaker tonight. Uh, It will go for about 45-50 minutes and then there will be some time for questions, so please hold off your questions until that time. Uh, Now let me introduce you uh, to the topic and to the speaker of uh, this evening's uh, uh, event. it's about food, so, so production, uh, marketing, preparation and consumption of food is really one of the key uh, defining uh, aspects of humanity. Uh, the relationship between good nutrition and good health has uh, been known uh, to, 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 uh, to, to exist for many centuries empirically. Unfortunately, in uh, societies like ours in Australia, we are now seeing uh, situations where um, diseases that could be related to food and are related to food, such as uh, um, uh, obesity-related diseases uh, like diabetes and cardiovascular diseases, they're climbing the morbidity and mortality uh, charts. Um, economics uh, underpins uh, some of the choices that we are making about production, marketing, preparation, consumption of food. And uh, it is my great pleasure tonight to um, uh, introduce to you my dear colleague Mara Tienef, uh, professor at the University of Padova, who is going to unpack for us some of these uh, economic uh, aspects uh, of food choices that, uh, that we are making, not only in consumption but in other aspects of food as well. Now, Mara is a distinguished scholar in uh, agricultural resource and environmental economics in general, and in choice modeling in particular. She is one of the uh, globally uh, influential uh, scholars that define methods in this area and applications. So um, uh, we are very pleased to have Mara uh, on board. Uh, She's also a great, great friend of this university uh, um, and she works tirelessly in continuing uh, to establish the already existing collaboration between the two institution, so that's another, another plus. Uh, she has been recently applying the methods of choice modeling to the research of food choices, which puts her in excellent position to uh, give us a talk on food choices and their determinants in economics perspective. So please welcome me, please join me in welcoming Mara to the lecture. Thank you very nice, Dio, for your Ah, thank you very much, Theo, for your very nice words. Uh, let me first thank you, the School of Economics, uh, Theo, and also the organizers. Uh, it is a great pleasure to be here and a great honor as well. Um, so the title of the talk tonight, so uh, Food Choices and the Determinants from an Economic Perspective. Uh, let me start by saying that food choice is seemingly simple, but in fact, it is actually quite complicated behavior as it is influenced by uh, many interacting factors. 
And this gives you, uh, this me also the opportunity to uh, apologize as I will not, of course, be able to cover all the topics tonight. There are several disciplines who really try to tackle uh, this issue and try to answer to the main question that is, what are the drivers of food choices? We start with the economics, first of all. Of course, the, uh, it addresses the issues of price, which is quite important, and the related benefits. But also then we turn to marketing. Marketing uh, has been addressing the beliefs and the attitudes of consumers. And when we turn to uh, psychology, which focuses mostly on personality traits and also, of course, on sociology uh, with social status and culture and then biology. Tonight we're going to focus on economics with a little bit of extension to psychology and maybe marketing. So starting with the economics perspective, um, the literature on economics has been investigating food choices uh, since uh, quite a while, um, I would say since the beginning of the 20th century, and it has been done this primarily uh, with uh, the use of uh, or with relying on the neoclassical approach. As many of uh, you know, this approach is fairly limited in that basically uh, the idea is that there are only two determinants of food choice, so price and budget constraints. We know this is not true. Uh, um, fortunately, later on, the analysis of food choice has been extended to investigate other areas, particularly to take into account the variation of preferences of consumers towards different types of wood and the quality of uh, food as well. Nevertheless, the neoclassical approach is still somehow um, working, at least for some uh, perspective. Uh, let's take a close look to it. So within this approach, consumers are typically known to be fully rational. So consumers know exactly what they want and they know exactly how to pursue it. Uh, important, uh, their set of preferences is uh, meant to be insensitive to context. So for example, I'm from Italy, as was introduced. I'm from the north, uh, northeast area of Italy. It's a wonderful area, uh, and they're uh, very good there at producing Prosecco wine. So this assumption would imply that, for example, I like Prosecco as many other people, that I would have the same set of preferences, or I would like Prosecco at home, at restaurant, at the bar, or at parties, which really doesn't mean uh, much sense. Also consumers uh, in the, the neoclassical approach uh, are very able to evaluate all possible substitutes and particularly they're very good at processing all kind of available information. So in other words what we face is that the decision-making process is really a single stage one. So people process all the information and make their choice. This is kind of not realistic. Um, fortunately, uh, already uh, at the late of the 70s, uh, many people were working at that, and Simon, for example, was very good at uh, addressing the fact that these assumptions of uh, perfect rationality really do not hold. They do not, and I'm quoting him, they do not even remotely describe the processes that human beings use for making decisions in a complex situation. This was then uh, helped and done by, added by the work of psychologists, uh, famous is the work of Tversky and Kahneman, 
they highlighted, they stressed that not only people are not necessarily rational, but also individuals depart rationality in a systematic and predictable ways. This gives the, the leads the, the path to the uh, behavioral economic. Uh, this is this wonderful news of last week. Richard Thaler got the Nobel Prize in, econo in economics for his wonderful contribution in behavioral economics. Uh, behavioral economics literally embeds psychology into economics. It's a fairly recent uh, uh, field of economics, and it, it is really helpful. Uh, basically, it allows for irrational behavior, and more importantly, it looks why people act so irrational. So Richard Thaler has done a great, uh, has provided a great contribution. His work uh, is famous, for example, for, for his theory of nudge. And also, he's also famous for his, the term that he's coined in terms of choice architecture. So what is choice architecture? Well, it deals with the way uh, that we present choices. So the way that we present choices really influence the choice itself. What is a choice architect? Well, any of us can be a choice architect. A choice architect is someone who's really engaged of organizing, who's really in charge of organizing the context, the environment uh, in which then people make choices. So think about a doctor uh, who, uh, uh, who faces his patients and who has the, the duty to uh, uh, present them several different uh, medical treatments. He's a choice architect. So choice architect can be, of course, uh, very well applied to the food choice environment. For example, um, there are several studies that have been highlighted that uh, uh, the fact that fruit and vegetables particularly are on the front line, when they are on the front line, they are purchased more often. Uh, candies, for example, where candies are in transparent boxes, uh, as compared to opaque boxes, they are purchased much more. But let's move a further step. There is another person, so another economist, whose name is Daniel McFadden, who got the Nobel Prize in 2004 Econometrics. So he got the Nobel Prize for his great contribution in this area. His focus was on choice behavior, so he wanted to understand how people would act. But what he says is basically, we all focus on the outcome, so on the choice, that is the outcome really of something that's underneath. This, this something that is underneath is really the cognitive decision process. So typically economists do not, dis, do not take into account properly this process. So he coined this term a black box. So the cognitive decision process for economists for a very long time was a black, black box where instead he would say that choice behavior is the outcome of cognitive process. There is influenced by, first of all, preferences. We all display different preferences for any type of good, uh, food as well. Uh, but then this is also influenced by perceptions and belief, which in turn are informed by the available information. But we're also influenced by attitudes, affects, and motives. But the reason why he got the Nobel Prize is not exactly for this. 
is because of his contribution um, in linking the theories of the economic theory with the methods. So he really was able to provide the uh, econometric tools that we all use since then that allow us to investigate behavioral choices and those tools are known with, uh, as discrete choice models. So what are the theoretical background of choice models? Well, choice models have their roots in <coughs> two theories, two economic theories. The first one is the theory of value. This was introduced by Lancaster in 1966. Lancaster basically says that any good can be <coughs> described as a bundle of characteristics and the level that it takes. So what I mean is really this. We have apples, for example. Apples can be described in terms of price. Price is certainly an uh, important determinant, but that's not the only one. They can be described in terms of imperfections in the skin. They can be described in terms of the method of production, organic or not. And they can be described in terms of origin and in terms of any other, many other uh, characteristics. Let's get now to the second um, uh, uh, economic theory that is important here. So the second one is the so-called random utility theory. It was introduced by Marshak and even earlier by Luce. And that, this is exactly where McFadden got his contribution. So this theory says basically that any person, any individual retrieves a certain amount of utility from picking, from choosing an alternative. And this utility that he retrieves is made of two components. So we have the first part that is the deterministic part that we can analyze. This is the part that is observable to analysts. But it's also a second part, which is stochastic, this epsilon here, who's not observable and who cannot be investigated at a certain extent by the analyst. This part of utility is only in the mind of the person who really made the choice. Okay, why should we, should we be using choice models? What are the advantages of using such models? Well, first of all, these models allow us to retrieve the probability of choosing or picking an alternative within a set of options. So we are out there, we're looking for, we're looking for making a choice out of many different options of wines or many different options of vegetables or whatever, okay? This approach allows us to uh, quantify, to estimate the probability of picking an alternative versus other alternatives. The second point is that it allows us, it tells us why we're making these choices, why we're picking these alternatives, in other words, it allows us to estimate the determinants of choices, that is, the type of attributes, the list of attributes that really made us, that really influenced us in selecting this alternative. So it is with the preference heterogeneity, with the variation of tastes across respondents, across people, across the population. And the third point is, it allows us to estimate the amount of money we're willing to spend. So the marginal willingness to pay for the selection of attributes that really influenced us. So let's now turn to the determinants of food choices. Um, there are, the list of uh, determinants of food choices is of course very long and this list is not exhaustive at all. Uh, let me just mention some. So some of the determinants that are important are sustainable production methods, psychological traits, geographical origin, 
food safety, goals and motivation, and we'll turn to each of these in a, in the, within the next slide. But let me also add that um, in the last part of the presentation, what I would like to tell you a little bit about is, is this. So the fact that we gather, that we have some understanding about the food determinants, about the elements that are also drivers in terms of, of our choices, I mean, is this going to help us in terms of setting up some strategic health policy? Because this is really where we probably should head. So let's now turn to the list. So let's begin with the sustainable production methods. Uh, we all know that there is an increasing um, list of concerns over the risk related with the use of chemical pesticides. And this has pushed uh, the research for, in order to define more sustainable food production methods. Uh, again, this list can be longer, but the three maybe most important one are the organic agriculture, that is the refrain, so not use of uh, synthetic or chemical, fertilizers, pesticides, and so. The second one is the integrated pest management, so IPM, which basically integrates traditional, so the chemicals, with some sustainable practices to control pests. And the third one is biodynamic. So biodynamic is some form of alternative agriculture. It's very close to the organic farming, but it's something different because it adds in terms of sometimes of esoteric concept. So it goes back to Rudolf Steiner, who was really the one who introduced this, this theory. So there are uh, several streams of research along this line. The first one is probably the one, the stream of research that uh, addresses really organic farming. So uh, there are several studies. I just uh, cited here a couple of them. Uh, those are studies who are focused on consumer willing to pay a premium for organic food. So this study investigates organic apples, olive production, organic rice, and many others, and basically show that people are willing to pay uh, a premium for that, which ranges in euros or other dollars, whatever, depending on the type of, of the study. But they, always, they also highlight that there is, this cannot be true for any study. For example, there, is, there are a couple of studies um, one is pretty famous, is the study which was carried out by LASC in the U.S., a fairly recent one. Uh, that was on beef steak, and they really highlighted how uh, people were not willing to pay any premium for organic because they didn't believe that organic was good neither for the health, and for, for the health sorry, or for the environment as well. Another stream of research focuses on the comparison of uh, across fair, uh, alternative farming methods. Uh, mm, uh, the general findings show that uh, uh, people support, uh, on average, all of these uh, farming methods mm, uh, with the preference for maybe the organic one. There is a third uh, stream of research. This is probably mm, the most interesting one. It's fairly recent. This focuses on the effect that are on the effect that are associated to sustainable farming. And I'm talking about the willingness to support, expressed by some part of the population, uh, in order to uh, uh, reduce CO2 emissions that are associated with sustainable farming, or the reduction of pesticide residuals, or also the reduction of waste. 
Let's now turn to the second one, so psychological aspects. Um, it is well known that uh, um, uh, aspects like uh, personality traits, moods and emotion do affect food choices as they also interact with each other. Under certain circumstances, circumstance, um, it has been shown that people in situations as, for example, stress, anxiety, boredom and depression, people tend to eat uh, comfort goods. There is, uh, for example, foods that are very rich in fat or are uh, very sweet. Um, there's a lot of research on that, but let's get a closer look. Uh, at the end of the 90s, Goldberg um, came up with this study, which, with this uh, field of research, which basically uh, showed that there are big five personality traits that really allow to measure personality. So the big five personality traits are openness, that is the propensity to uh, be imaginative, to be flexible in motion, conscientiousness, the propensity to be organized, active and hardworking, extraversion, the propensity to be sociable and lively, agreeableness, which deals with the, um, uh, the inclination to be helpful and sympathetic, and also neuroticism, so anxiety and self-consciousness. Now, how do we apply this big five personality traits to food choice? Uh, there have been many studies uh, according to which for example, openness and conscientiousness are associated with large consumption of vegetables and fruit and with low consumption of meat. Agreeableness is mostly associated with low consumption of meat, whereas neuroticism is associated with high consumption of uh, sweets, cakes. An extraversion in the end is associated with both high consumption with seed and high consumption of, of meat. But let me now turn to another study. This is a study we've been carrying out in Italy. Uh, it is a study on preferences towards uh, carrots in an alpine valley. So why am I talking about this alpine valley? Well, you know, this alpine valley, the name is Val di Gresta in the Dolomite, is a very nice area, by the way, and I suggest you to visit it. But the, the reason why I'm raising this point is because this was the first place in Italy where they started to produce organic vegetables. So this is really a case study. So what is our interest here? What we wanted to do here was uh, to see whether collecting information on psychological aspects, so psychological uh, traits, would be of help in terms of better understand food choice. So this was our key question here. I mean, is the fact that we collect additional information on psychological traits, is going this to be of help to us in have a better picture of how people make choice? So let me give you a little bit of back background. So those, the list here of uh, attributes is the one we focused on uh, for the first set of data. So we wanted to compare production system like the conventional farming with the integrated pest management, organic and dynamic farming. This was of interest of the people working there. And then we also wanted to um, possibly investigate the role, the importance of the brand, so the denomination of origin, Val di Gresta or not, and then some other, some other uh, items. Let's now turn to the psychological part. So we focus on a specific um, psychological theory the name is protection motivation theory. 
And it's pretty clear from now that we've been working very close with the psychologists because economists are typically like parcels, they know everything, but you know, we didn't really want to rely to someone, to someone that was really on the job. So this protection motivation theory is made by two components. The first one investigates the cognitive process that people have in evaluating their threats. So this is the threat appraisal process, which deals with, the, which is measured by uh, things like fear, severity, and vulnerability. The second component is, on the other side, the potential reaction. So the ability that any single person, any of us, has in order to cope with, and also in the will, enhance in the, with the will to avoid the danger. So this second part would be the coping appraisal process. And this would be measured by um, things like response costs, self-efficacy, and response efficacy. So let me just tell you, how did we collect this data? We typically, uh, as the literature suggests, we collected data, this data via attitudinal questions. We asked people uh, to answer, uh, for example, from, by using ranges from I strongly agree or strongly disagree to a list of, uh, long list of statements. So following the protection motivation theory, uh, this theory allows to, by analyzing the data, to uh, predict four different uh, type, types of um, uh, groups. Why? Because this is based on the fact that we, had, we might have high uh, threat, so people who uh, are very much threatened, or people who are low threatened. And on the other side, we have high coping and low coping. So we end up, for example, with a group of people that PMT defined as problem focused, that are highly threatened, but also highly coping. So they are, they are very active and they engage very much. On the other side of the spectrum, for example, we have people who are not threatened at all and who are not coping at all. So they know action one. Okay. So let's come to our data. So we run our model and we uh, estimate uh, some, and we get some results for this first part. Now, what do we get here? The left part of, yes, the left part of the graph shows the average response values that were uh, provided by people. Uh, according to what? According to a long list of questions that are reported here. So the first part of questions uh, are in some way measure threat, whereas the second list of questions, second part of questions are meant to measure the coping uh, approach. So we, we uh, chose the best model, which ended up by giving us three different groups uh, of people. So let's see whether they relate somehow to the PMT theory. So we go with the first group of people, uh, so the blue line, that are the problem-focused one. So as you can see, these people really uh, strongly agree that uh, conventional food causes allergies and diseases. They strongly agree that conventional agriculture impacts the environment. They, they really fear that conventional programs contain pesticides, and they really fear that the environment suffers under conventional agriculture. This is for the threat. On the coping side, they do purchase organic because of the health, and they do purchase uh, organic because of the environment. Let's see uh, how uh, the other groups uh, um, 
appear. So this is the pink line here. This is the no action group. So to make the story short, we see that these people, for example, are not really feared at all to get ill with conventional products and they do not purchase any type of organic nor for the, for the impact on the health and or for the impact on the environment. So um, this is already a nice uh, um, uh, uh, kind of information, but this was not our target because we really wanted to use this information to inform the following model, that is the choice model, to see whether this makes any difference which is what we did, uh, sorry, and this is the intermediate group, which is really in between. So here we go with the results of the second model, so the choice model. We have on the left-hand side here the attributes. So what is the content of this table? The content of this table is the willingness to pay estimates for the selection of attributes we were looking for. So the willingness to pay for the uh, attributes as dynamic farming, organic farming, integrated pest management, so on and so forth. For what? For the three um, different groups of people. So we have the problem focus here and we have the no action here. So just to give um, a short look, we can see that, for example, the problem focus um, people are willing to pay one euro as a premium price, so one euro in addition to the price they pay for carrots, one euro for organic farming, and you can also see they display positive willingness to pay for others. And whereas, for example, the no action guys, they, are, they display a negative willingness to pay, so they're not willing to pay any amount of money, so they're negative towards dynamic farming. And if you look across the results, you can see that they nicely align along this direction. Let's then turn to the third point, the geographical origin. So consumers uh, have shown an increasing interest for uh, foods that, is, that are produced locally, so for local foods. Um, uh, uh, once again, the, the literature is uh, um, fairly large on this, uh, um, um, on this topic, and overall, uh, people seem to prefer local food for a variety of reasons, mostly because uh, this kind of food is fresher, is tastier, and is safer. But also because they think that there are beneficial, that they think there are benefits for local farmers and the communities, and also beneficial for the environment. So let me show you the result of a specific study here. This was a study on local apples hmm, conducted in Italy from a group of persons, that's not me. So what they found is that people are willing to pay a premium price, a premium price for locally grown apples. Okay. But they also went a little bit further and they wanted to see whether uh, psychological traits like extroversion and agreeableness were going to influence this average positive willingness to pay. Okay. And I think the results are pretty interesting because they show that, for example, the effect of agreeableness is going to increase willingness to pay that is reported on the y-axis here. Okay? But on the other side, extraversion is actually going to decrease uh, willingness to pay for locally grown apple. So once again, results need to be very cautiously uh, taken into account. Let's now move to food safety. This is a hot topic, I'm sure. 
So there are many new techniques that have been developed um, that basically improve uh, the general quality of foods in the whole supply chain. Um, there are important advantages that are associated to the development of these techniques. First of all, this type of techniques usually allow to improve the efficiency. For example, they allow to increase yield. But importantly, they also allow to produce something new in terms of taste, in terms of flavors, in terms of textures. And also, of course, they ensure to improve the safety uh, of the product. This is all very interesting, but the question then is, uh, are consumers willing to pay something for this? I mean, are they interested towards this, towards the adoption of these new techniques? Uh, the reason we are focusing on this is because no doubt that there are very important advantages, but if consumers are not willing to pay for them, to buy them, then maybe uh, we, need, we would need to, take, to make some reflections on that. So, um, once again, recent research has shown that uh, uh, on average, consumers are interested in this and are willing to spend money on uh, these new technologies, but uh, they are willing to spend money if these new technologies are used for food packages rather than food, food processes, and they also do not involve a risk for health, and importantly, also if there are environmental benefits associated to that. So then I thought it was of interest to select one of these uh, new um, uh, uh, new approaches uh, and focus on, for example, nanosensors. Nanosensors um, are very important as they, of course, from an engineering point of view, and uh, because they allow to detect the pathogens and hence the uh, contamination. So here are the results of a recent study from some colleagues from the UK who basically um, uh, asked and investigate whether people, whether consumers were willing to pay to avoid the food poisoning risk associated with the use of these nanosensors. You see two bars here because uh, the authors actually um, um, surveyed two different samples of people. The first sample was on consumer, general consumer, that is consumers who would buy conventional chicken. And the second sample instead was focusing more on sustainable consumers, healthy consumers. That is consumer who would buy chicken environmental friendly or, I mean, uh, raised with some environmental friendly technique. So the interesting thing is that you can see that uh, in both cases, there is a positive willingness to pay, but in the case of the uh, more sustainable consumers, the willingness to pay is almost a double. So let's now turn to the final one, so goals and motivation. We all know that uh, within our everyday life, uh, we're striving to pursue our goals. So we're trying to have uh, the best food, so very healthy food. We're all, we're all trying to improve our health and to get the best of, of our, from our lives. But the way we pursue our goals really depends on two elements. So it depends on some uh, external circumstances, of course, some, something that is out, different from us. But all, they also depend on the cognitive strate strategies that we put in place. So let me go with an example. Um, so 
how, we, how do we address uh, questions in food choice similar to this? What would you like to eat, madam? So we have here a whole bunch of different dessert types, okay? Very different from one another. Now, uh, what I'm suggesting here, and particularly this, this stream of research, is that goals really drive uh, decisions. So what I'm saying is that um, if my goal is uh, to be familiar with food, I would probably select this kind of dessert, so donuts and jellies. But if my goal is to indulge myself, so for example, I love chocolate, okay, then I would select and I would so focus on this type of dessert. If instead I'm, I'm worried that because I'm gaining weight and I would go and my priority, my goal is to eat in a healthy way, then I would probably select yogurt or fruit salad. Okay? But this is not it. Goals can be also constraints. So we could have constraints in terms of allergies, so be gluten intolerant, dairy intolerant, as it is my case, so forget about the chocolate cake, or about nuts, dairies, and other stuff. So what I'm trying to say is that back to the decision process, decision process is really a two-stage process, not a one-stage. And it's pretty clear, because what we do in our everyday life, we first look at our goals, we identify them, and then we screen out alternatives. We screen out options. We eliminate this option from our choice set, and we focus on the remaining options. So this is fairly new in uh, economics, and it has been uh, tackled only very recently by Geoffrey Swade, who, by the way, is a professor in a, here in Sydney in another university. Um, so let me now turn to another to the last part of the talk. So uh, Tio very nicely pointed me out uh, the other day to this uh, uh, article in the Sydney Morning Herald. So the article is reporting that experts have shown that cutting sugar in soft drinks would save 150,000 lives and 8 billion of money. Okay, so what I'm thinking is that how, I mean, is there something we can gain out of the studies on food choice in order to be of help uh, for setting up policies, health policies that are strategic to address these issues? Of course, there is a lot that can be done. And what I'm going to show you is just a small example along this way that hopefully can clarify a little bit just to have an idea of where we uh, maybe could be heading to. So it's nothing very fancy. But it's, you know, a little bit uh, uh, to st start thinking with. So this is a study that we've been carrying out in the UK. And uh, it's about the influence of labels, in particular front-of-pack food labels, on dietary choices. Um, so let me provide you a little bit uh, with the context. So we have, we can see this uh, uh, statement from WHO that says that UK, Ireland, Finland, and Luxembourg are among the top 10 nations in the world for the prevalence of obesity, which is quite striking. Then we have very prestigious uh, journal like The Lancet that says that comes out with its forecast and says by 2025, the global obesity will reach 18% in men and will even surpass 
21% in women. So it's kind of scary. Okay. So I guess that our question is, if this is, the quest, if this is the framework, then what consumers decide to eat, so consumers' choices, really plays a major role in being overweight, so in obesity. Okay, so uh, it has been recognized that uh, food labels are quite effective uh, as a tool in order to uh, fight or in order to decrease unhealthy diets. Why? Because they convey uh, in interesting nutritional information. So along this uh, line, the UK Food and Health Authorities have promoted the use of uh, nutrition information via uh, food labels in prepacked food. Particularly, they have provided, they have promoted the use of front-of-pack labels. Now, let me say that back-of-pack label uh, conveying nutrition information became mandatory in Europe, at least, since last December, but uh, front-of-pack labels are still voluntary. What kind of information do these labels convey? Well, they are diet information, that is, information about the content of sugar, fat, saturated fat, and salt. And they do that along the guidelines daily amount, basically. So our question was, uh, there are many types of labels that are in place that can be used, and we were interested in uh, investigating whether these type of labels were really effective in terms of conveying information. The labels are there, but do people really understand? Do people really read? Are people affected by such labels? Um, so we uh, uh, framed our, we designed our uh, survey uh, by considering four different types of uh, labels, the, the ones that are more, that are mostly used. The first one is text only, so we would present people with different types of food baskets, which are ba were based on their typical weekly food basket, and we asked them uh, to consider this label. So the first one is uh, uh, with text only, the second one which would add in terms of the GDA, so the guideline daily amounts. The third one adds the chromatic elements, so for example, the uh, green would indicate low level of fat, and the uh, red would indicate high level of salt. And the fourth one is, uh, would convey all information, so it's called hybrid. Um, okay, so what we did was what? We collected the data, we estimated our models, basically, and uh, uh, we end up with uh, uh, the results. What did we expect? Okay, so first of all, we run the models in order to retrieve the marginal willingness to pay, so the value that people place on what? On different types of nutrients, so sugar, fat, saturated fat and salt, and most importantly, on the value that people place on different levels of that, so low level of sugar versus high level of sugar, low level of fat versus high level of fat, and so on and so forth. So this was our first task. We ended up with, um, uh, with uh, um, uh, estimating, with obtaining four groups of people, okay? The first group of people, we named them healthy rounders okay? And this would account for, so the probability to belong to this group would be 38%, so a fairly large part of the sample and hence of the population. 
given the estimates of the motor. So the first group, the healthier rounders, okay, uh, they, would, they are nicely shown that they all show a positive willingness to pay for low level of all nutrients and a negative willingness to pay for high level of all nutrients. The second group would deal with fat lovers. So those, this is the critical group, which accounts for 32%. It's quite a bit. Uh, messy group, the only clear thing is that they're willing to pay, and so they focus their attention on fat. Okay, so high level of fat. Then the third group would be selectively healthy, so selectively focused. They are interested into low level of saturated fat and salt, but that's about it. And then the last group, you know, 11%, it's quite a bit. If you think about the population, you barely don't even see the bars. So they are very low interest. So they're, not, they're not interested, basically. So this is fine. So what is the next step? The next questions are basically, first of all, are these people sensitive to food labels? And if yes, at what extent? And the second question would be, who are these people? So let's first uh, answer to the first question. So the second group, the fat lovers, the one we are interested in, in terms of policy, of course, because the first group, we're very happy with that. So we should be really working on the class number two and class number four. So class number two, the fat lovers, you know, as you see, I mean, the fact that they were, they were presented with uh, GDA and MTL, so multiple traffic light labels that convey average amount of information, it really, the fact that they were presented with that, it really did not affect them. So they're insensitive in a way to the use of these labels. Whereas the third group, the selective focus, they were sensitive to the hybrid. So the, most, the type of label conveying the, 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 the greater amount of information. So that's fine. So the next step is, who are these people? So let me first say that, apart from the choice question, we ask them questions like, how frequently would you read the labels? And we also ask them questions relating to their weight uh, in order to compute the body mass, body mass index. And also we ask them questions, I mean, how do you perceive your real body? Do you perceive it as just about ideal or not? So we see that the, the fat lovers are, tend to be older people who never really or very less frequently read, read the labels and who think their body is ideal, okay? And, you know, more on the next slide. Uh, so the selective focus instead are mostly women, okay? That the high probability to, that they are women and are quite fit. And the last class, in case we have any doubt, they're not interested, they're not even reading the, the labels. Now, and I'm, I'm really, the next is really the last uh, slide, or yes, the last slide. So this is interesting, but is what is probably most, more interesting is to use these estimates to run some simulation, to run some forecast, to run some uh, predictions in terms of seeing, I mean, if we change something here, okay, so if we change something, if we change some class determinants, okay, how are class membership probabilities going to change? Okay? Because what we would like to see is to be able to shift people from one class to another, possibly decrease the fat lovers and increase some other classes. Right? So that's what we did here. 
we increase, for example, real weight, body mass index. And so this graph reports, just to explain briefly, so if we look at this first part of the, glass, we, of the graph, we see the four classes that we saw. So we have the healthy rounders here. The red are the uh, fat guys. We have the selective focus, and then we have the more that are interested. Okay, so what we did here was to increase, increase uh, the real weight. So we would move from a normal range to overweight, obese class number one, two, till the very last. What is the baseline here? So we need to set the baseline, of course. Baseline where young females, 30 years old, who never really read the uh, food labels, and importantly, who perceive their weight as about ideal. Okay? So to make the story short, what we see here is that when we increase the real weight, there is a major switch, a major shift, a major redistribution from basically the moderately interested, so this class, up to the fat lovers. Okay? So this is quite impressive because it shows quite clearly that these people are not aware of having obesity issues. And this is exactly where we instead should be heading to. So we should be tackling this kind of persons, probably with something different than labels. So labels work, but they do not work for everybody, and we should probably be aware of this. Okay, so I'm just about to finish some very uh, quick conclusions. So decommodified farming seems increasingly important for consumers. Uh, food choices are really pre-mediated and more often than sometimes, I would say. Um, some people have a wrong impression of their own image. And then maybe most importantly, we hope that uh, the uh, outcomes that um, is from this type of research should be really useful uh, to set up uh, some uh, strategic uh, health policy. And I'm finished. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.